0: Father in heaven, we come to you as the King of Kings who sits on the throne, the one who invites us to approach your throne with boldness, to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Lord, as we look at the world around us, clearly we're living in a time of, of need. Clearly there's so much going on in this world. We need your grace. We need your power. We need you to speak to us in a way that makes a difference in our lives this morning. We give you full permission this morning. Please send your Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts. Lord, wherever our minds may be right now, we just pray that you would focus our eyes on Jesus, that we would hear your voice speaking to us, and that we would follow. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus, our King of Kings. Amen. Being in the presence of greatness is something that we don't get on an everyday uh, experience. We don't always get to experience it on a daily basis. There was one day, though, that I got to be in the presence of somebody who I considered to be quite great. I don't know how many of you are billionaires. I don't think a lot of you, probably. but Or how many of you know a billionaire? But in the eyes of the world, being a billionaire is Greatness, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's a pretty great thing to have a billion dollars. Well, one day I got to go with a friend of mine to meet an uncle of his who's actually a billionaire. The guy owns Telluride, which is this big ski area in Colorado where famous people like to go and ski. He's, he's got all kinds of businesses. So here it was, we were going to be in the presence of greatness, and my friend begins to tell me the story about his mom. His mom had also gotten to meet the, un- it was kind of a distant uncle-cousin type situation. They, they didn't know him really. They just now were getting to know him, getting to, to visit him. And the mom, one day, she got to meet him. And as she came up to him and said, hi, and she was just, they were introducing each other, telling each other a little bit of their background. And pretty soon he began to drop some things like, well, yeah, you know, I own Telluride. And my friend says, his mom was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Where's Telluride? What is Telluride? He's like, Well, Telluride is a place where Tom Cruise goes on vacation and where we have all these. She's like, Tom Cruise? Who's Tom Cruise? It wasn't going very well for his greatness. His pride was shrinking down pretty fast because she had no idea. All this stuff that he was saying, it meant nothing to her. She was in the presence of greatness. Didn't mean anything to her because she didn't really know this guy. She didn't really recognize the stuff about him that in the eyes of the world made him great. We've been talking for the past week about ISAB, about the ISAB mentioned In the book of Revelation chapter 3, when it talks about the people of Laodicea, the people who are living in the last days of earth's history, the people who are facing that final great crisis, they themselves are facing a great crisis. I'm so thankful for Evan and his dedication today. (laughs) He's excited about it too. We can still hear him excited about it. It's awesome. Yeah, he could preach today. That would be good. Revelation chapter 3, if you want to go there with me, we're going to continue looking at this message to the Laodicean church. Now this is a vital message for you and I to understand, as we've been talking about for the past few weeks. It's vital for you and I to understand because in the scope of Christian history, while John wrote this, uh, gave this message from Jesus specifically to a group of people who lived in the city of Laodicea, it represents... People living at the very end of Christian history. We look throughout the seven churches at how each of them represents a portion of Christian history. And if you missed any of those, I encourage you. You can just go to the website Templelandhills.avventistpath.org and click on media, and right there, the sermons are uploaded by our great audiovisual team. But here we're going to pick it up again and look at Revelation chapter three verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, that's the people of judgment, the Greek there, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is so powerful. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We've talked about how it's the loving works of Christianity that are inspired by Jesus that lead Christians to be a representation of Jesus to this planet. John 13 35 talks about how by our love the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. But Jesus says this church is lukewarm. Their works are okay, but they're not fervent. They're not hot. They're not on fire. They're not filled with the love of Jesus like they could be. And so because it's lukewarm, I'm ready to vomit them out of my mouth. This is one of the most descriptive warnings that Jesus gives in all of Scripture. And so that's why we're focusing so much on it. I want to know for myself, am I heeding what Jesus had to say here? goes on to say, verse 17, "'Because you say, I am rich.'" and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. They don't recognize that they have a significant problem. They feel like everything's okay. They feel like their life is put together. They feel like they have enough to take care of themselves. And more than just physically, this is a group who feels that they have a knowledge of God. They feel that they are increased in spiritual wealth, spiritual riches. They feel that they have an understanding of God, that they have an understanding of Jesus, that they're following what Jesus has taught them. But they don't realize that in reality, their hearts are wretched and miserable and they're poor and they're blind and naked, that 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 knowledge alone is not going to qualify them to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. So Jesus gives them counsel. He doesn't just leave them there in this situation where they don't recognize their problem. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The city of Laodicea we talked about is famous for their eye salve. They had a, a little medical school there that people came from all over to have the eye salve put on their eyes or to learn how to apply it. It was famous for being able to restore people's vision. Jesus says, the key here is that you have eye salve that enables you to see more clearly. And last week we talked about eyeing the light. When we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, when we see that glorious picture of Jesus seated on the throne like Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, seeing Jesus in all of his glory that will bring light to our lives. That will open our eyes so that we can fall more in love with Jesus and that will motivate us to live our lives more wholeheartedly for Jesus. But it goes on to say, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. If anyone hears my voice, I'm, I'm outside the door actually knocking, Jesus says. A week or so ago, before vacation Bible school, I went around through a, an apartment complex nearby just taking vacation Bible school flyers and knocking on doors in the apartment complex. You've probably had the experience before, if you've ever gone up to a door where somebody doesn't know you, sometimes you'll hear some shuffling behind the door. You're there knocking, and you know that they know you're there. You hear the TV's on. You hear dishes clanking. You may hear a kid talking or something, and then all of a sudden, everything gets silent. Wow. Then you knock again. Nothing. I think I'll just leave the flyer at this door. And I don't blame people. When you have a six-foot-six guy just standing outside of your door, In the middle of 102 degree heat, what is he doing here anyway? Why is he here? It's okay. I don't mind. I'll just leave the flyer for them and hopefully they'll want to come to Vacation Bible School. Then there's other doors where you come up to the door and they crack the door open and they look out. Who is out there? Who is this guy anyway? What is he doing here? It's important that we come to a knowledge of who is knocking at the door. I don't encourage you just to open the door in the middle of the night when you have a random stranger knocking at your door. But when that family member comes to your house that you've been waiting for for a long time with anticipation and they knock on the door, how quickly do you just throw the door open and invite them in because you know that they're going to come in and that they have love, that you're there to have a celebration together? And that's what Jesus promises here. He says, if you open the door and let me in, we'll have dinner together. It'll be fellowship. It'll be like Christmas. We're going to have a good time together. Just open the door. So do you see how important this Isav is? Because here's a group of people who feel like they're following Jesus. They feel like they understand spiritual things. And yet Jesus is outside of the door of their heart, knocking on the outside of the door of their heart. And they don't even realize it. They don't see it. They don't realize that they're miserable and poor and blind because Jesus, who gives all joy, is outside of the door of their hearts. This is a critical place to be in, a dangerous place to be in because they don't even, they say, who is this guy knocking on the door of my heart? They don't recognize Jesus. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Here Paul prays for the Ephesians. And he prays for them to have an enlightening experience in their heart so that they could recognize, so that they could know Jesus for themselves and they could experience Jesus' love for themselves. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 15. Paul is here and he's saying what he prays for the Ephesians for, what he's thankful for the Ephesians for. He says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, remember it's by our love that the world is going to recognize that we're followers of Jesus your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesian church for. This is what that great apostle, when he prays, this is what he prays for people. So I take heed when I see something like this, and I think maybe I need to be praying this for my friends, for my family. And I think how I would long to have somebody praying this for me. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, The Father of glory, that one seated on the throne, may give to you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's praying that God would pour out the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would bring wisdom and a revelation of a knowledge of God. He's saying for the Ephesians, more than anything else, what I want you to do is I want you to be filled with the Spirit so that you can know Jesus better for yourself. It goes on, continues in verse 18. It says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, some of your versions there will say the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Either way, in the New Testament, it often refers to the heart as being a place of understanding. We had Dr. Arlene Taylor here, a few weeks ago, who explained that actually our hearts have neurons in them, that they're actually able to comprehend and process things similarly to how our mind does with the neuron processes. So here, Paul is praying, saying the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your hearts being enlightened, filled with light through this knowledge of the revelation of Jesus, a knowledge of God, that you may know, look at what he wants them to know, What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? Which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly places. He says, look, Jesus is your Savior He's been seated at the right hand of God, and what I want more than anything else is for the Holy Spirit to fill your hearts so that you have a knowledge of God that enables you to see what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. What is going to be your privilege of sharing with Jesus in that internal inheritance in heaven? Paul desires that their hearts be enlightened, that they see a broader a deeper a more beautiful picture of God that they fall more in love with God and that they have this realization of the riches that God has what happens when you recognize value in something when you recognize that someone some person some individual something has such great value Jesus actually gave a parable in Matthew chapter 13. If you go there with me, Matthew chapter 13, he tells a parable about a merchant who's going through a market. Now this merchant is specifically looking for fine jewels. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 45, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. It's beautiful how Jesus again and again would just say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he'd give this desp- de- description or this picture, this story that would help it, them to visualize what it was like. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here's a story of a merchant who's going through and he's looking through the, the pearls. He's looking through different ones and all of a sudden he sees it. This beautiful pearl, it's maybe maybe to the untrained eye it doesn't look so beautiful, but to this merchant, he recognizes in this pearl that it's one of great value. It's one of great price, that it's worth everything that he possesses. So although he's a, a rich merchant who maybe has a lot of jewels already, he goes and he sells absolutely everything because he recognizes in that pearl is worth more than everything that he possesses. Jesus says that, that right there, that moment, that transaction, when the recognition of that beauty, of that glory, of how wonderful it is, of being willing to give up everything else, that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When you come to a knowledge of God, and God becomes so beautiful, you recognize him, you adore him so much, that you're ready to just give up everything else, that nothing else matters anymore except for Jesus, that is when the kingdom of heaven has come home to your heart. Not much later in the Gospel of Matthew, we find a story where Jesus actually gives this opportunity. Jesus did this multiple times where he revealed to people the opportunity Of knowing him more fully, more completely, of falling deeply in love with him. In Matthew chapter 19, we already looked at the story in verses 13 to 15 where Jesus was blessing the little children. This story had, or this moment when he, he called the children and he laid hands on them and he was blessing them you imagine what it did to the crowd who was surrounding Jesus? As they're there and they're watching what's taking place, they're seeing that Jesus prioritizes children, that Jesus loves these children. And as they're listening to his teachings, as they're watching Jesus, the crowd loved Jesus. He was the one who would heal every person who would come up to them. He was the one who taught these beautiful things about the kingdom of heaven. And here they're just watching Jesus as he blesses these kids. You know, when somebody especially cares about the kids, you can, I don't know about you, but I tend to feel a a greater trust towards them. When you see that genuinely they love kids, they care for kids, they're watching out for children, you recognize there's goodness there. there. All of us, deep down inside, recognize the importance of children, how children need to be especially watched out for. And so seeing this about Jesus, that he especially cared for children had an impact on the crowd around him. We know that it had an impact on them because verse 15 says, and he laid his hands on them and he departed from there. So after blessing them, he begins to leave the area. Now in verse 16, it says, now behold. Matthew's saying, now look. This is what happened next. And and the Gospel of Mark depicts this next scene in a way where the person comes running to Jesus, This individual is earnest about seeing Jesus. He's seen something about Jesus that he recognizes. There's something beautiful here. There's something I want for my life. I want to get close to Jesus. And as Jesus leaves, he comes running up. Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This young man comes up to Jesus, running up to Jesus, falls at his feet and says, Jesus, there's something you've got here. You're a good teacher. What must I do that I could have eternal life? Jesus' response to him is kind of interesting. Jesus responds and says this in verse 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? Why would Jesus say this? Jesus knows That he is good. That he's never done anything wrong. There's never been a sin in his life. He knows that he is God on earth. And obviously he is good. In fact, he goes on to say this. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You see, Jesus saw in this young man as he approached him. A vast potential in him. He saw that this young man was beginning to catch glimmers of the kingdom of heaven, that he was beginning to see a little bit of the value of this pearl of great price, that he was having a little bit of eye salve that was applied to his eyes. The Holy Spirit was working on his heart, drawing him to Jesus. And as he came to Jesus, he called him a good teacher. Now, when he said, you good teacher, I don't think he meant, hey, God on earth, would you explain to me how I could... Inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus recognizes that this young man, although he's trying to say nice things, this young man, although he's recognizing the goodness in Jesus, that there's so much more for him to capture, to understand, to realize about the beauty of who Jesus really is. So he says, do you recognize what you just said? You said that I'm a good teacher. Do you know that only God is good? Do you recognize that what you just said about me, it means I am God on earth? Like all this goodness that you see, all the things that you see me doing, this represents the Father here on this planet? Do you see the beauty of God in me? He's wanting for this young man to come to a fuller knowledge of himself. Goes on to say, answering the young man's question, but If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. It's a very interesting thing Jesus says here because here he is, a teacher who's come from God. Here he is, the Son of God on earth. Here he is, God himself. And he's saying, if you want to enter into eternal life, if you want to experience goodness, then keep the commandments. Now, you might be questioning at this point, okay, well, what commandments? What is Jesus talking about? And that's a very good question to ask. And the young man asked the same exact thing. In verse 18, he said to him, which one?" Well, what, do you, what commandments are you talking about, Jesus? If you're talking about the Old Testament, there's 610 ritual laws. There's so many things there. How, how do I know what commandments you're talking about, Jesus? What, which ones specifically do I need to make sure that I'm keeping? Because I want to make sure. This is an important question. I want to make sure that I live forever. Jesus says the commandments are important for eternal life. Which ones, Jesus? Jesus answers, verse 18, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. What is Jesus quoting from? He's quoting directly from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments that were given on Mount Sinai, who I believe the pre-incarnate Christ himself gave to Moses and wrote down on tablets of stone there on the mountain. That law of love that we talked about a few months ago. Jesus says, hey, if you want to enter into life, you want to experience the kingdom of heaven, this is the way, this is the path, keeping these commandments. Can you imagine what our planet would be like today if these laws were kept? The amount of love that would be on this planet If you think about the news over the past week, we wouldn't have news about Turkey and shootings in Turkey. We wouldn't have, and bombings. We wouldn't have news about shootings in in Dhaka. And, And we wouldn't have news about our own streets, the robberies that take place, the murders that take place. If only this law was kept, life would be better even here and now. And you notice that Jesus actually says this when he says, You will enter into life. He doesn't even say just eternal life, but he says you're going to enter into life, period. When you keep these commandments, they're going to make your life better. They're going to increase the goodness in your life. The more you have the love of Jesus in your heart, the more you're going to experience his goodness. Then he concludes it with this. He's been summarizing. He quotes five out of the the last six of the Ten Commandments, and he skips the last one, interestingly enough, which is, thou shalt not covet. And then he says this, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This really is what summarized that entire last six commandments. He said, I'm just going to summarize it all. If you just love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself, that you take care of yourself, if you watch out for your neighbor, if you're careful for the the things, the trials, what your neighbor is going through, if you're watching out for them, like you're watching out for yourself, providing for yourself, then you're good to go. You will have been keeping these commandments all along. So verse 20, the young man makes it apparent that he needs more ISAV that he needs a clearer picture because he feels like he's rich and increased with goods. He feels like he's been going through the motions. You notice that a lot of these commandments are formed in the negative. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. This young man is good with a religion that's full of do nots, that is full of you shall not do such and such. This young man goes on to say in verse 20, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? He recognizes that there's still something missing in his life. And some of you today may be sitting here saying, There's still something missing. I come to church I know about Jesus that he saved me by grace and that he tells me that if you love me, John 14, 15, keep my commandments and I'm trying to follow Jesus, but there's something missing. What do I still lack? This young man recognized in his life that although he had stopped doing a lot of things, he'd had a religion that kept him from committing adultery, from murdering, from stealing, that there was still something missing in his heart. He hadn't really experienced that beautiful experience that Jesus was talking about. So he said, what do I still lack? What's still missing? I think it's a crucial question for us to ask. Is there something still missing in our lives? Is there something that we still lack? And Jesus, Mark 13 expands this a little bit. It says that Jesus looked at him at this point. And it says that Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him and he thought, this guy is a good guy. He's trying to keep the commandments. He just doesn't realize that Christianity is not just a negative, but it's also a positive. Christianity isn't just about what you don't do. It's more about even what you actually do. So Jesus goes on to say, verse 21, Jesus said to him in Mark Tells us he was looking at him with love. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, teleos is the word there. If you want to have it all together, if you want to lack nothing, this is what you got to do. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says to this man, okay. You've kept these commandments. You've stopped from committing wrongs. And Now what you need to do is you need to go and you need to sell it all. Give to the poor. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Walk in my footsteps. Become my companion. Jesus is knocking at this young man's heart. He's saying, I want to go deeper with you. I want to have a deeper experience with you. But this is a pretty radical thing he's saying to him, isn't it? Here he's telling him, you've got to sell everything. You've got to sell it and give it to the poor. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he'd said specifically that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If, if this young man has a problem in not loving his neighbor. And Jesus is recognizing this problem. The solution for learning to love his neighbor more deeply, more fully, is to throw all that he has, all of his wealth, all of his resources into loving his neighbor. Love what it says in The Desire of Ages. It describes this moment. It says, The choice was left with him, page 520. Jesus was yearning for his conversion, he's longing for this young man to be converted. He had shown him the plague spot in his character, and with what deep interest he watched the issue as the young man weighed the question. If he decided to follow Christ, he must obey his words in everything. He must turn from his ambitious projects. With what earnest, anxious longing, what soul hunger did the Savior look at the young man hoping that he would yield to the invitation of the Spirit of God. He hopes that like the merchant, he will look at Jesus and he will realize that in Jesus there is a pearl of great price that nothing else compares to having Jesus and that he'll be ready to say, I'll do it, Jesus. Just to be with you, anything and everything in my life can go because I just need Jesus. I just want to be with Jesus. Sometimes though, As I've read this story, I thought, that's kind of intense. Why would Jesus... I mean, here's a young man. He's he's growing. He's learning. He's seeing pictures of Jesus. He's wanting to follow Jesus. Why does Jesus make it so difficult for him? Why does Jesus make him say, you've got to go and you've got to sell everything? Back in 2008... Well, it was around then. I met a girl who was very special to me. Actually, it was 2007 when when part of the story I'm going to tell you. Um, but a few years before that, I want to backtrack. I was in college, and I purchased the biggest purchase of my life up until that point. I was going to school, and I had been in an accident where a drunk driver had T-boned my car in an intersection, and the car was totaled. And so I got the opportunity as a college student to go and pick out a car. So as I went around and I was looking at different cars, I was looking for the fastest car I could possibly find. I was looking for a car that would be really cool, a nice car that I could drive around. And I found one day, it was for a good price, a Volkswagen Jetta that had a VR6 motor in it. And for me, for you that may not be a really fast car, but for me that was a very fast car. There's a picture of my dad and I standing in front of it. It was so beautiful to me. It was so fast to me. Like the engine, it didn't sound like a Civic engine, which I actually love Civic engines now because they're reliable, but it, was, it would roar. I had one friend ask me, say, now do you have you know, some... Flowmaster added to this that makes the engine sound like that? I said, no, that's just the engine. I was pretty proud of it. It was great because you could shift into fourth gear and then the car for some reason wouldn't notice the, it wouldn't do the governing thing anymore of limiting your speed so you could go past the 130 miles an hour that it normally limited you at. It was a great car. I loved this car and I'd spent money on it. It was a treasure to me. It, it, it meant a lot to me. Now imagine as this young man is there with Jesus, he's thinking about some of the stuff that he has in his life. Some of the stuff that was especially precious to him. Some of the stuff that was of especially great value to him. We'll come back to my car in just a second, but notice how this young man responds to Jesus. In verse 22 it says, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. He recognized that he was giving up something of infinite value, and yet it wasn't quite valuable enough to him, and he went away sorrowful. He knew Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus enough. Now, for a long time, I hung on to this car, and I drove this car. I took good care of this car. I washed it more than I wash my car now. I cared a lot about this car. And then I met a girl in 2005, and we became good friends. And before long, we were dating. And after a couple years of dating, I finally decided that the, that the moment had come when I was gonna ask her to make a deeper commitment. I was gonna ask her to marry me. I won't go into details of that story, but I'm so thankful that she said yes and she agreed to marry me. Now, at this point, At first, we were planning to get married the coming summer. This was, I believe it was in August when we got engaged. We were planning to get married the following August. Then we got home, and we told my parents about this engagement. As my parents are rejoicing, they love Leah. They're they're so excited that we're engaged to get married. All of a sudden, my parents, I don't remember which one said it first. They're like, well, are you sure you want to wait till next summer? How about... How about you get married at Christmas? We're both looking at each other. Did our parents just say that? That sounds amazing. But how would we ever do that? How would we afford it? We're still in school. We'll have another six months of school after that before I graduate from PUC. How is that even possible for us? to? But hey, the parents are saying this might be a possibility. Let's not question them too hard. We began to think about it. How could this even be possible? They said, hey, we'll keep paying for your school bill at PUC, we'll keep paying that part of it. I thought, well, that's one thing checked off the list, so all we need is some living expenses for six months. We've got to be able to come with that somewhere, and I love Leah. I love being with Leah. I love the idea of being married to Leah. At that point in time, that was what meant the most to me in my life. I couldn't think about much else. It was hard to think in classes. All I could think about was that wedding day when we'd finally get to live together, as I thought about it, I thought, well, what is the most valuable thing that I have? Ah, my car. I could sell the car. And I went to Leah and I told her about selling the car. And I don't remember exactly the conversation, but I think she was a little surprised that I wanted to sell my prized possession. But at that point in time, it didn't matter to me at all. I could care less about the Jeddah because I had something of infinitely more value to me. And that was the love of my life. That was my wife. To think of our lives being joined together. And I can tell you, I have a picture here of our wedding day. When, after that marriage took place and we were about to go down the aisle, I didn't think anything about that Jeddah. We sold it before the wedding, so we had enough wedding enough money for the wedding, for our expenses afterwards. I didn't think anything about that Jeddah. That was the last thing on my mind because I finally had the treasure that meant so much more to me, and that was Leah. If only, if only this young man, this rich young man, could have recognized in Jesus, recognized in the kingdom of heaven. If only he knew God, if only he had eye salve applied to his eyes, and he could have seen the value of the offer that Jesus was giving him. Jesus says, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want for you to follow me. I want for us to camp out every night together. I want for you to witness all of my miracles. I want you to be there when I raise Lazarus from the grave. I want you to be there in the upper room when When I wash your feet, I want you to be one of my disciples. Won't you follow me? In order to do that, though, you've got to sell some of this stuff so that it's not distracting you. You've got a lot of responsibilities. It tells us elsewhere in the Gospels. He was a ruler. He had a lot of ambitions. He had a lot of plans. He had a lot of stuff he needed to do. He had a lot of stuff he needed to take care of. And Jesus says, would you just get rid of all that, sell it, and come and be with me. What better offer could Jesus have given to any person? I can't help but think, if if Jesus gave me that offer today, would I recognize the value? Sometimes I think to myself, Well, you know, I'm not really that wealthy. And if that thought is going through your mind today, I just want to put up a quick statistic. If you were to make just $16,500 a year as an individual in the United States, and this is adjusted for cost of living, you would be among one of the richest 10% of the entire world's population. You would earn 12 times the global average just to make $16,500 a year. And if you don't make that much, you're probably still in the top 20%. Over half the world makes has less than $2.50 a day to live on. But you think back at the times of the rich young ruler, you think about what the rich young ruler gave up following Jesus for. Today, we're probably digging up the bones from his animals that he wanted. We're probably digging up some artifacts that tell us about this ruler of that time, possibly, maybe not. We're probably digging up some of the gold that he hung on to, some of the silver. It's probably buried somewhere. It probably means nothing to anybody except for a few people who like to dig through dirt and make museums. And yet he gave up walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Makes me wonder, what do I give up? What do I refuse to give up in order to be with Jesus, in order to have fellowship with Jesus? Is Jesus knocking on the door of my heart and I'm not noticing it? I'm not caring. I'm not responding. I don't see the value of what he's offering me. Could it be? You notice what Jesus had said to the rich young ruler at the end of listing the commandments was you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. I love how it depicts, in heavenly places, page 225, it says, Millions upon millions of souls, ready to perish, bound in chains of ignorance and sin, have never so much as heard of Christ's love for them. Were our conditions reversed, what would we desire them to do for us? Think about that for a moment not just those billions of people who live on $2.5 a day, but those billions of people who don't have the privilege of sitting in church, of having a Bible, of learning about Jesus. Imagine for a second that your roles are reversed. Imagine that you're the one on the other side of the planet who's never heard of Jesus Christ. Imagine that you're the one that doesn't have access to the stories that we're reading today. Imagine that you don't have what you need to know Jesus. What would you want me to do? If you were in Asia, if you were in the Middle East and you never heard of Jesus, what would you want me to do? What would you want yourself to do for you if you were there? That's what Jesus calls us to do. He says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do what you would do. If you were in that situation and your roles were reversed, love like you would love in that case. And Jesus even takes it a step further at the the Last Supper. He says, a new commandment I give to you, a brand new one. That is to love as I have loved you. He wants us to take it even beyond loving in the way that we would want other people to love us, but he wants us to take it to the place of following in the footsteps of Jesus, the King of kings who is willing to step down from the throne to come to earth to live in poverty in order to save those who were willing, who is willing to go to the cross for you and I. Jesus calls you and I to take up our cross and to follow him, to deny ourselves, Jesus says, and to take up our cross and to follow him. That leaves me asking myself, what am I denying? Am I, is there anything in my life that, that I deny in order to take up a cross, to, to, to provide the opportunity for salvation for somebody? Am I doing anything of value? Am I loving my neighbor as I love myself? This morning, I just want to challenge you to think hard about your life. To ask Jesus to reveal to you, to put eye salve on your eyes, to say, is there something I'm hanging on to? Am I clinging to stuff like this rich young ruler? Or do I recognize the value of Jesus? And am I willing to, to get rid of everything else, to, to minimize my life, to downsize my house, to minimize the yard work that I have to do, to to prioritize Jesus' work. You see, Laodicea feels like it's inconvenient to be involved, like it takes too much work, like it takes too much time, like it takes too much money. And many of us feel that way about church. Many of us feel that way about following Jesus. Just don't ask too much of me. Don't ask too much of my life. Don't ask me to be there too much. But Jesus, He asks for radical commitment. He asks for wholehearted commitment. He may not ask you today to sell everything, but I guarantee you that he's asking you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. Over the past week as I've been praying about this message and thinking about what in me is Leo to see? Is there anything else? Is there anything in my house that I can sell. I've actually made a few phone calls this week trying to figure out how to sell some more things in my house because what if I could just give a little bit more? What if I could sponsor another child in Asia to have lunch and to have the opportunity to learn about Jesus? What if I could give a little bit more to our church so that we could have a bigger vacation Bible school next year? so that we could have more parenting classes, so that we could have more outreaches, so we can run more clinics to help our community, how could I possibly give more? I'm realizing that that's the question, that coming face to face with the beauty, the glory, the love of Jesus, that's the question that I have to ask myself. What more can I possibly give for the one who's given all for me? Is there something more I can give? Maybe it's more time I can give. Maybe it's more of my resources I can give. Friends, the world is in desperate need of Laodicea to wake up, to be filled with love, to be filled with fervent works for Jesus. Not for salvation, but as a result of the love that Jesus has showed to us. If it's your desire this morning, I want to make a little bit different of an appeal First of all, I want to invite you, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just to stand with me this morning. If you just want to say, I want to commit for the first time, or I want to commit uh, for the thousandth time that I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, I just want to invite you to stand with me. Saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord, I want you to be King, I want you to be everything in my life. I believe, though, for some of us this morning that God may be asking us to take a step further. Like I've said over the past week, God's been showing me a few things that I could do more, a few things more I could sacrifice, a few ways that because of the amazing love of Jesus, I could deny myself a little bit more. So today, I just want to come down in front and just say, I want to commit a little bit more. I want to deny myself more. I want to ask Jesus, is there more that I can give for your kingdom? Is there more ways that I can represent your love? And if that's your desire this morning, if there's something specific, if you don't come down, that doesn't mean that there's not something specific in your life, but it may just be that God hasn't revealed it to you. But I want to invite you, if there's something, some way that you recognize, I could give more. I could sell something. I could give more time. I can do more for the God who did everything for me. If your heart's saying that this morning, I just want to invite you to come stand down here with me as I close in prayer, just to give you that tangible opportunity. We don't do this often, but just that tangible, actual experience of walking down here to the front and of saying, Jesus, I recognize there's something more. I recognize there's a part of my heart that maybe hasn't fully been there and I want to give more to you today feel free to come down or if you want to make this commitment in your heart where you're standing, I understand that. But there can be something special too about coming down and just saying, Jesus, today, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm ready to give more, to sacrifice more. I want my treasure to be in heaven. I want my heart to be with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, Father, I thank you for everyone who's standing this morning saying, Jesus, you are our King, you are our Lord, you are our Savior, we accept you. And Father, I also thank you for how you're stirring in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit a desire for more, a desire to give more, a desire to do more, not because we want to earn salvation, that's something you give to us freely, but as a result of the infinite love, the infinite beauty of Jesus, they were recognizing we want to do and to give more. Oh Jesus, in our own strength we could never do this, but we're praying for your grace. We're praying for you to lavish the riches of your grace on us, like it says in Second Corinthians nine and eight, that we would have an abundance for every good work. Father, pour out your grace on my friends this week as they seek to be filled with your love and to represent your love, to do whatever it takes to give lavishly, to love liberally, and to follow Jesus with their whole hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.